This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In her sparkling and splendid new book, The Afterlife of Ottoman Europe, Muslims in Habsburg, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Leila Amzi Erdodolar presents a thorough and deeply layered account of the relationship between the Ottoman and Habsburg empires and Muslims of Bosnia-Herzegovina, leading to and beyond the Berlin Treaty of 1878. At the heart of Erdodolar's project is an argument for taking seriously the significant continuities in the relationship between Ottoman imperial rule and the religious and political lives of Bosnian Muslims. This meticulously researched and beautifully written book makes a compelling and convincing case for disrupting the popular opinion that locates the beginning of modernity in Bosnia-Herzegovina with the onset of Habsburg rule. It does so by showing the complex and fascinating histories and discourses on such critical questions as migration or hijra, the encounter of Islam in modernity, education, and the nation that highlight the important role in place of Bosnian Muslim intellectuals and other Bosnian actors to this story. This outstanding book is a landmark publication in the study of Islam and Muslim societies that provides a critically significant avenue of learning about a religion and history often missed in dominant historiographies. Here now is my conversation with Professor Leila Amzi Erdodolar. Hello, Leila. Welcome to the New Books Network. It's such a, a pleasure to be speaking with you. And it was uh, such a thrilling experience intellectually, despite you know the conditions that we're in right now, to, to read this book. And some very interesting resonances also, in fact, uh, with the current moment. But you know, as I was saying before we pressed, before I pressed record here, that this is such an important book for multiple reasons. Uh, it's historical rigor, the kind of uh, wonderful uh, lyrical prose and just I think a theme and a region that so often gets missed out in discussions on Islamic studies, the Middle East, certainly modern politics. So on all these multiple fronts, I think this book makes a, a really exciting and important contribution. Uh, we have a tradition, Leila, on the New Books uh, Network that our first question is always biographical. So could you share a bit with our listeners about your story of how you became a scholar? Yes, uh, thank you very much for for inviting me and your your kind uh, words of introduction. Um, I um, I didn't always know that I will be a scholar. I uh, came to United States uh, with my family as a refugee uh, during uh, the uh, Serbian aggression wars in in the Balkans. And it is only when I was um, completing my master's degree that I decided to uh, go on for. Uh, a doctorate and um, started thinking about a career as a, a, a scholar. I uh, was trained in uh, Middle East uh, studies, Middle East, I did Middle East and Islamic studies, Ottoman studies, uh, obviously, and learning uh, Turkish and Arabic and Persian, uh, you know, it got me into, uh, got me into this uh, track. Uh, and uh, the idea for this book, of course, the book comes out of uh, my re- research for my dissertation, and uh, it really started with uh, migration, uh, with the question of migration, and then developed into this uh, um, afterlife of uh, Ottoman Europe. So I thought a good way to begin uh, our conversation uh, would be to talk about one of uh, what I read as one of the central arguments of the book. Uh, and the book really uh, focuses on this question of uh, continuities uh, in the relationship between Ottoman imperial rule and then the religious and political lives of uh, Bosnian Muslims. Um, so, and, and you show very clearly that there is a certain kind of a popular or even scholarly 
understanding of this relationship and you provide some kind of an alternate to this uh, popular or dominant understanding. Uh, so I was wondering if you, we could begin with that central argument, if you could describe that for our listeners, and that might be also be a good way to you know, set the stage, so to say, in terms of the key actors, the key sort of question that animates uh, this book. Sure. Uh, yes. Yeah, so um, uh, Habsburg rule of Bosnia-Herzegovina is um, probably one of the most researched periods of, of Bosnian history. Um, and uh, very often this is presented as 1877, the, the, the year of um, Austro-Hungarian occupation, is presented as this entrance of uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina into Europe of uh, the beginning of modernity and modernization uh, in the province and, and so on. Uh, but of course, you know, scratching the, the surface, uh, one can see uh, uh, this as as um, rather well bluntly incorrect, but uh, we see uh, many more um, layers here that uh, that overlap to to give us a more nuanced uh, um, picture of this of this period and and the the, the act of occupation and the the position of uh, of this Ottoman province in um, Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, so, uh, just to mention a few, so we're we're, um, um, we're talking about uh, Austro-Hungarian occupation that was decided during the Berlin Congress in 1878. That came uh, on the uh, uh, it was part of the so-called Eastern Question uh, that uh, the European powers saw as um, an important question of how to divide Ottoman territories among themselves, of course, uh, maintaining this balance of power. Uh, so uh, Bosnia was one of the Ottoman uh, provinces in Southeastern Europe, in sort of the, the uh, Ottoman European territories. Uh, and earlier in the century, uh, already um, um, parts of uh, the Ottoman Empire, such as Greece or uh, parts of Romania, Bulgaria, Serbia, of course, uh, were uh, separated from the Ottoman domains in, in various different, you know, whether they're um, autonomous regions or uh, independent uh, kingdoms uh, and so on. So there's this, uh, a series of, of different um, arrangements for, for these uh, territorial detachments from, from the Ottoman Empire, um, kind of ushered and... and uh, uh, promoted by uh, European powers uh, involved. Uh, in, uh, in the case of Bosnia, uh, there was, uh, uh, in 1875, another peasant uh, rebellion that uh, 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 created uh, conditions uh, where Austria-Hungary, uh, or the Austrian territories right across the river, so the border of, of Bosnia, uh, were involved with with uh, refugee management and, and so on. So uh, there was uh, there was uh, uh, in in you know the eyes of European powers uh, ample uh, reason to occupy this province because of the reasoning given at the at the Berlin Congress was that the Ottomans were unable to handle uh, the situation in. Uh, in Bosnia Herzegovina, so this uh, this province was then sort of given to Austria Hungary to to manage, and and this created this uh, this um, uh, ambiguity of the status of the province, which um, uh, which nominally still remained um, the the sovereign possession of the Sultan of the Ottoman Sultan, but. Uh, there was, but it was effectively uh, in, in practice ruled by Austria-Hungary as, as sort of a special uh, unit added to to the dual monarchy, um, and and these ambiguities uh, created uh, space for all of these uh, things that I talk about in the book of the uh, uh, Ottoman continuities, how a local population. Uh, participated in 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 that whole story, as well as even the Austrian uh, Austro-Hungarian administrators who uh, uh, 
in in one way or another continued some of these Ottoman um, features and, and policies and, and laws uh, and practices uh, that worked for their uh, imperial rule in the province. Oh, sure, sure. So, so one of the main uh, main features here that we see is that um, Austro-Hungarian um, uh, administrators continued to sort of classify and and organize the, the population of Bosnia and Herzegovina um, by religion and not language, as it is in the rest of the provinces of, of the Habsburg Empire. Um, and, uh, of course, this is also discounting the, the Tanzimat reforms that uh, were implemented in, uh, uh, in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina as, as the Ottoman province, right? So this um, uh, feature of a religion as sort of the, the identifying uh, uh, the populations was then uh, used and used and abused, we could say, uh, by all three uh, actors, uh, meaning the, the, the Habsburgs, the Ottomans, and and the local population, and be- and becomes this connection to the Ottoman Empire. <clears throat> it was a feature of the Berlin uh, of the agreement, uh, the Berlin uh, Congress, and the subsequent agreement between the Ottoman Empire and um, and Austria Hungary that the population. Uh, in Bosnia Herzegovina, meaning uh, mainly Muslims and Orthodox Christians, would have unimpeded connection to their um, spiritual leadership in in Istanbul, the the, uh, the Sheikhul Islam, the Caliph, and of course the the Orthodox Christian Patriarch. And uh, that becomes the basis of uh, of this sort of uh, competition uh, among empires, and and the population as well uses this. Uh, 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 as uh, a pretext uh, to uh, forward their own uh, interests in the province with both empires. Wonderful. Uh, Lila, I want to ask one other sort of broad question before we get more into the specifics of the book and its chapters. I found it really remarkable this one statement that you make in the introduction of the book, and you write, and I am quoting you here, you write that the history of Muslims is essential to the story of Europe. And the European Muslim experience is indispensable to the scholarly study of Muslims and Islam. So such a powerful and important statement. I was wondering if you could just uh, broadly speak about the importance of the statement to the larger goal of this project. Sure. I mean, the statement uh, really comes from this uh, cumulative historiography that we have uh, pretty much of the, the 20th century on uh what uh, what Europe is, what uh, what a European Muslim is, right, and uh, and the and who the Muslims uh, and what kind of Islam is there in in Europe, uh, and uh, talking about my my own focus, um, I'd first like to say again a few. Um, the, set the stage for the historical circumstances the the idea of Europe to begin with right is is being um, uh, really formed in the 19th century at, at this time when when Bosnia Herzegovina is is occupied as well so there's much work done on uh, Eastern Europe as the, the the east or the orient of Europe uh, southeastern Europe at, at in 19th century was really not Europe. It was uh, or the Balkans, right? It wasn't Europe because it was Ottoman. And uh, when when we look at, uh, for example, these travelers and tra- their travelogues uh, crossing into Ottoman territory for in, in Bosnia, that's crossing over River Sava. Uh, it, it is almost as if they're um, you know passing through a portal into this. Uh, an other world, other world that is uh, that comes from this European Orientalist imagination uh, of the East, the Orient, uh, with with all of those uh, uh, features we're, we're familiar with. Uh, so this was really the, the Ottoman territories, wherever they reach at different stages, were the the beginning of the Orient uh, in in southeastern Europe. And once the the Ottoman uh, territories are lost and the Ottoman uh, border retreats, these territories are then in uh, 
many a nationalist lore, uh, then sort of reclaimed uh, as as European. Uh, uh, and of course, there's the the story of the Ottoman yoke and uh, getting rid of the the Eastern the Asiatic Empire, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the the, the uh, consequence of uh, of this were the numerous Muslim local Muslim populations that remained behind, and uh, these populations of of Muslims uh, were uh, very often equated with uh, the Ottomans, um, and that constant uh, equating of Ottoman with Islamic and, and Turkish. In, in these uh, political discourses and historical discourses, of course, uh, made these Muslim communities uh, across the Balkans, so not only in Bosnia, but in all the other uh, former Ottoman territories, uh, made them alien. Uh, it stigmatized not only the religion of Islam, but also uh, anything associated with Islamic and uh, Ottoman architecture, language, arts, uh, Anything that that was associated with the with the Ottoman and Islamic was uh, deemed backward. Uh, that led to policies or, that scholars called de-Ottomanization, de-Islamization, um, and uh, and they were used not just for uh, destroying architectural objects but also genocide uh, throughout the twentieth century. Uh, so. This denial of Ottoman and, and uh, Ottoman past in the Balkans and, and the cultural legacy uh, continues on to to, the, to this date uh, and is is well um, well documented in scholarship and and, and so on. So what uh, what we ended up having in, in historiography is that that uh, scholars uh, for much of the twentieth century treat southeastern European Muslims as somehow an anomaly, as a remnant of Ottoman rule, um, as uh, sometimes as this romantic site of East-West encounter, right? The, the bridge, the symbol of the bridge, and uh, and sometimes even the, the bridge in Mostar in Bosnia-Herzegovina, but also as this site of the physical location of class, clash of civilization, uh, as as we've seen um, it presented, for example, in by, by the aggress- Serbian aggressors in the 1990s. Um, so, uh, in, in then this is the, this is the, the stage that, that we're talking about in, in Southeastern Europe. Um, so for, for, uh, the, when we, when we talk about the, the Muslim world, um, what I wanted to show here is in, in the book is the, the activity and role and connection of. Um, Muslims, uh, and I mostly focus on, on Muslims who left some uh, uh, written uh, trace, right? So uh, intellectuals and writers and, and, and so on, and activists who uh, saw themselves as part of uh, the, the broader Muslim world uh, because of their previous uh, connection to the Ottoman Empire and their Ottoman education and, and languages uh, that, they, that they spoke that, that made them um, able to be in touch and read papers from uh, different parts uh, you know, of the world, such as from the Ottoman Empire, but also from India, from Egypt. Um, uh, they followed the uh, educational and institutional re- reorganization in the... Uh, in the Russian Empire, Russian Muslims, um, those in post-Ottoman Bulgaria. So they were aware of um, sort of colonial situations across the Muslim world and tried to um, learn, in a sense, from from each other about uh, various ways that uh, solution and advancement of their um, cultural and and, uh, political uh, situation uh, can can be created, right? So um, other other scholars have written about this in in other locations. Uh, you know, Faiz Ahmed calls it inter-Islamic networks and Simalave uh, Muslim cosmopolis. Uh, so what what I'm doing here is really incorporating Bosnia Herzegovina and, and its uh, Muslim intellectuals into these spheres uh, of. Uh, and, and sort of expanding this ge- geographic reach, 
and very much in response to um, uh, Bosnian and, and Balkan Muslims being um, seen in, in contemporary uh, uh, studies on, on Islam and, and the Muslim world as somehow the periphery or, again, you know, from this European discourse, some kind of an anomaly uh, of, of existence in, in Europe. Terrific. Uh, so in chapter one of the book, um, you very convincingly show and argue that you know uh, Bosnia was not some kind of a peripheral or an afterthought for either the Ottoman or Habsburg empires. And you show in very interesting detail the kind of dynamics of and the ambivalences of this triangular relationship, uh, so to say. Um, and uh, you detail the sort of circumstances and sort of developments uh, uh, preceding the eventual occupation of Bosnia by the Habsburg Empire in 1878. Um, so could you talk about that sort of dynamic of that triangular relationship? And maybe, I mean, you talk about so many developments and, and historical uh, sort of uh, trajectories uh, that, of course, would be impossible to capture here. But I thought perhaps you could pick a couple of uh, most important and major developments uh, that you see as particularly critical to take note of in terms of uh, uh, the uh, uh, period preceding uh, 1878. Right. So um, what uh, what is important to know here is, of course, the position of uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina. This is the westernmost province of the Ottoman Empire uh, in the 19th century. Um, the It's largest border is with the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, there is a history of conflicts, the border conflicts, right? Bosnia is uh, the, the Sarhat, the, the, the border of the empire. The, uh, the Bosnian, uh, uh, mostly Muslims, were engaged in um, various defense organization of the border uh, region in uh, in Bosnia throughout, uh, you know, the 18th, 18th century. So there's definitely that that history of conflict and and uh, uh, you know border defense of defense of the the empire. Uh, we could say pretty much on on both sides. Um, so um, uh, one other important uh, thing is uh, here to to consider is of course Austro-Hungarian. Uh, ambitious uh, ambitions in southeastern Europe, so uh, a, a desire for for expansion uh, to counter Russian uh, increasing influence uh, in south, southeastern Europe, um, and this this was something actually that both the Austrians and the Ottomans had in common to to uh, really stop uh, this this Russian expansion. So even uh, after the occupation, we could see. The, uh, the Habsburgs and the Ottomans kind of collaborating more and supporting each other's aims in, in southeastern, southeastern Europe um, against, uh, against Russia, then uh, kind of an open conflict. Uh, of course, all of this um, uh, happened in diplomatic circles rather than uh, on the ground. So when we talk about uh, uh, the... The actual occupation. Uh, another thing uh, that is important to note is that this is a period of um, of uh, when the what we call the international system or international law is is really uh, being in its formative uh, period. So uh, occupation of Bosnia Herzegovina by the Habsburg uh, Empire was really one of those experimental examples, in a sense. So uh, laws of occupation uh, are, are, have been really tried here. Uh, what uh, at the Berlin Congress, for example, it wasn't really clear what this occupation meant. Ottomans thought that this was just going to be rather informal, but uh, it, because uh, the... Uh, the, the Austro-Hungarian troops were there before it was even ratified was uh, was was kind of upsetting to the Ottomans as well. So uh, troops on the ground was something that uh, the Austrian what what the Austrians understood this occupation to be right. So we have these uh, 
different ideas of what uh, uh, what occupation means. And throughout the the uh, decades that uh, the Habsburgs controlled uh, Bosnia Herzegovina, this was uh, sort of a point of contention and uh, experimentations with both empires. How far can we go in defining what this occupation means? Uh, and of course, in between uh, 1908, there's the, the uh, uh, Young Turk Revolution in, in, uh, in the Ottoman Empire. And this is a, a cue for the Habsburgs to um, annex uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina uh, from the Ottoman Empire, knowing that they won't be able to, to react uh, in the midst of, of revolution. So this is sort of the formal annexation, whereas the, the previous decades were really an experimentation in um, in the laws of occupation and what occupation of a sovereign uh, land meant uh, in, in international law. So <laughs> what what we see when, and uh, just one more point I want to make here is, why is this relevant? Well, uh, how did it, uh, how, how was it different from, from every, uh, anything else we've seen in, in that region and in the way that uh, the Ottoman territories were uh, chipped off, in, in a sense, in in, in, in their European uh, uh, land possessions. So, what uh, what was important here is that Muslims uh, had a very different experience than uh, in the rest of uh, southeastern Europe. Uh, so, what uh, what the Habsburg occupation of Bosnia. Uh, how, how it was markedly different uh, was that uh, this, despite this history of conflict and in seventeenth century and late seventeenth eighteenth century, uh, the Habsburg uh, administrators saw uh, the Muslim population as uh, crucial to establishing their rule in the province. What happened in uh, with the Ottoman withdrawal from Eastern Europe since the late 17th century uh, was concurrent with uh, the Islamization uh, of the people, regions, even uh, names of places, right? So that this method became so consistent and so common that it's still um, something that's not really discussed by scholars uh, a lot. Uh, it's, it's a practice that was expected uh, and and it wasn't, uh, wasn't concurrent it wasn't considered for it, for its consequences, which is the, the Islamization, right? So when the Habsburgs uh, enter Bosnia Herzegovina, uh, the Muslim population was protected by the incoming administration. Uh, it was considered uh, important for for their plan in the pro- uh, in the province. And while there are other territories like Bulgaria and, and uh, other uh, other parts of uh, Ottoman Europe. Uh, being uh, other states were being carved out of the Ottoman territories, the experience of Muslims there was very different. Uh, The the experience in post-Ottoman Greece, Serbia, Romania, Bulgaria, uh, even after wartime violence that targeted Muslims, of course, the remaining Muslims continued to be victims of uh, policies uh, policies that were um, meant to exclude, exclude them and expel them from uh, from these new uh, nation states, uh, the idea was to make these new nation states ethnically, religiously uniform, uh, which in turn solidifies that particular nation's claim to land. So, in a sense, we could say that um, after the separation from the Ottoman Empire, Bosnia Herzegovina was able to preserve its um, religious and ethnic di- diversity, and specifically its Muslim population, uh, precisely because of uh, Habsburg rule. Uh, be- the Habsburgs hoped for, um, hoped that Muslims will sort of disengage uh, from the Ottoman Empire and then see uh, the, the Habsburg emperor as uh, sort of the protector of, uh, of their interests. Uh, this, in turn, was also uh, uh, an effort to show that um, uh, the model that uh, Austria-Hungary had, this multicultural uh, model, worked. Um, and uh, uh, so, so they had their own sort of internal reasons 
wanted to show the rest of uh, European uh, colonial powers that they too uh, can achieve this and are uh, capable of running uh, an Ottoman province uh, in their sort of different way. Uh, yeah. The next two questions I want to ask um, uh, are about that central theme you were talking about of migration, which is also a major theme in the middle of the book. Um, and, and you know, before I ask my, my, my question, I found it really moving, the narrative, and it's so resonant to the present with which you begin uh, your chapter on Hijrat or uh, migration, where you talk about uh, the migration of Bosnian Muslims uh, to Palestine under Ottoman rule at that time, who founded, uh, you know, um, relocated to Qaisariya, uh, and how, you know, in 1948, then they again had to be uprooted uh, through uh, Zionist colonialism. So I found that a really, really moving uh, narrative with which you began. Uh, the question I want to ask is, uh, you show and you really detail the varied forms of motivations and the impetus for this migration of Bosnian Muslims to Ottoman you know, domains of control. So if you could share a bit with our listeners about you know, what were some of the key motivations uh, that uh, were uh, that animated this migration and how did these migrations test the political and the administrative capacities uh, of the Ottoman state? Yeah, so this this nicely ties into this uh, what I was just talking about the the Austro-Hungarian model, uh, imperial model that, that they tried to test and and showcase in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So they they really wanted to show that their inclusive imperial model is successful, um, especially in the midst of nationalist and pan-nationalist movements uh, that were threatening this. Uh, model in, in, in the Habsburg Empire, in this multicultural, multilingual empire, uh, which was in, in, in that sense similar to, to what the Ottomans were, were doing. Um, Muslims uh, in Bosnia, uh, you know, a, a number of them, like the, the case that, that you just mentioned, um, left uh, before the occupation even took place. Um, those were mostly people who could leave, who had the funds to leave and um, were able to um, establish themselves in uh, in the Ottoman Empire with, with the permission of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, a number of people who leave at the onset of the occupation were administrators and uh, bureaucrats of uh, the Ottoman, uh, associated with the Ottoman uh, administration there. Uh, uh, people who serve in, in the military and so on. Um, and then uh, there are uh, several events uh, throughout the, the Habsburg period in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina that uh, were sort of the uh, events that prompted larger scale migration. Uh, so uh, in 1882, a conscription law uh, was uh, issued and many people who, who didn't want to serve in the Habsburg military or didn't want their children to serve in the Habsburg military decide to, to leave. Um, the uh, Austro-Hungarian authorities, of course, uh, don't want to, this to happen. Uh, so, um, but but they, they were also uh, interested in uh, establishing conscription uh, throughout the province. So there was, there was definitely that tension there. Uh, that died down very soon. Uh, th- there was also an uh, uh, armed rebellion uh, in reaction to conscriptions and so on. Um, another event is, of course, the, the annexation uh, of Bosnia-Herzegovina by Austria-Hungary in 1908 and the, the subsequent agreement in 1909 uh, that kind of sealed the fate of Bosnia as uh, uh, Austrian, uh, Austro-Hungarian domain. So until then, people, some people thought that uh, there's still some chance that uh, because legally it was a sovereign territory of the Ottoman Sultan, Bosnia might uh, somehow revert to, to uh, Ottoman control at some point. But of course, as, as the years went on, this, this became more and more of a um, wishful thinking than any kind of uh, uh, reality. Although there were people who... who 
thought that maybe the young Turks would be the ones to reclaim the lost territories in Europe and so on. So the, uh, the, what what is important here is also that a lot of misinformation circulated about uh, the position of people, about uh, alienation of their uh, possession, land and possessions, because this was something that was happening in uh, other regions uh, in, in Ottoman Europe when uh, the Ottomans withdrew. Uh, people were dispossessed, uh, expelled, and so on. So uh, even after these decades, uh, some some rumors about uh, these kind of uh, possibilities circulated. So that encouraged another wave of migration. Um, a lot of this uh, migration had uh, underlying uh, sort of uh, less social but economic uh, circumstances. So with the onset of... Um, Austro-Hungarian rule, uh, Bosnia was incorporated into the Austro-Hungarian um, uh, markets, and, and uh, which made uh, uh, Bosnian merchants and artisans, uh, it, it made it hard for them to, to compete. Um, taxes changed uh, that, uh, especially in the early years of occupation, were um, uh, impossible for some to to come up with. So there was there was a lot of uh, such cases that I described that uh, that prompted people to uh, decide to go on to the Ottoman Empire. Uh, what what they ended up doing is uh, a lot of them, especially at the time of uh, occupation and conscription, uh, is go to nearby territories from where they uh, in the Ottoman Empire because at this point the the border of Bosnia, the southeastern border, is uh, with the Ottoman Empire. So they would cross uh, into the Ottoman territories, kind of waiting for things to change to, in order to come back. So much of this migration in the in the early period was really not permanent migration. They they expected to to be able to return to their to their homes. Some continued uh, uh, relationships with, uh, you know, sort of live in the Ottoman territory, but have properties and, and businesses uh, go on in, uh, in Bosnia. Uh, so there's definitely these family trade and, uh, and other business uh, relationships that continued that um, allowed for uh, populations to kind of come and go uh, and have an idea what they can uh, do in the Ottoman Empire, how they can move and prepare for the move, which wasn't the case, for example, for other refugees that were coming from other parts of uh, southeastern Europe or from Russia, you know, Crimea and the Caucasus and so on. So the, the Bosnian experience of migration was very different uh, than uh, than the the rest of the you know five to seven million people who come to the Ottoman Empire in its last century. And of course, it was it was much smaller in number. It was a larger number for Bosnia as 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 the, the province, but in as a percentage of Ottoman uh, migrants, mig- so immigrants that come into the Ottoman Empire, uh, they they were in uh, a much, much smaller smaller percentage. The uh, next question I want to ask is about this fascinating chapter, one of my favorite chapters I think in the book. Uh, all of them are wonderful. Um, uh, we really bring to light some of the sort of internal debates and differences of opinion on the very question of uh, the normative Islamic status of uh, Bosnia Herzegovina, uh, the question of is it Darul Islam, Darul Harb, etc., uh, and on the, this very question of Muslim migration uh, from there to you know Muslim majority majority territories or to Russia. So I was wondering if you could maybe take a couple of these. Um, examples of uh, discussions, discourses, and arguments on this twin question of the normative Islamic status of uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina and on the whole question of is migration uh, you know, obligatory or not, and so on. And what was at stake in these competing positions uh, that were taken uh, on this uh, on this issue? Yes, so this, this uh, question of uh, status of Muslims under non-Muslim rule um, Starts to be discussed among, um, you know, uh, Islamic scholars, intellectuals. It's in the papers. You know, fatwas are being published all, all around. And of course, this wasn't a question for Muslims, Muslims in Bosnia and Herzegovina only, but uh, it was discussed uh, in uh, 
places as far as uh, India and and uh, the Russian uh, uh, Russian Central Asia and so on. So, <coughs> excuse me. But also, this was not a new um, new question, right? Uh, Islamic scholars have discussed this before because this is not the, the very first time that Muslims live under non-Muslim rule. Uh, what first comes to mind is, of course, Al-Andalus, where uh, uh, Muslims, uh, where, where these kinds of uh, discussions and, and uh, uh, scholarly work was also produced uh, on, on the status of, of Muslims under, under non-Muslim rule. And then throughout history, we have other examples of this. But what was new in 19th century is that so many Muslims uh, were under uh, colonial rule uh, in uh in, in, in their native native lands uh, and uh, discussions uh, about whether Muslims should migrate and make hijra right making this connection to the, the hijra of the the Prophet Muhammad uh, from from Mecca to Medina uh, to live under uh, to live in freedom right under under Muslim rule and live uh, a phrase often uh, mentioned is live an Islamic life, right? So um, we're at, at this point, really, in 19th century, we're talking about millions and millions of people. And um, much of this discussion, and so the majority of opinions, we could say, is really not about uh, encouraging migration. Yes, there are uh, scholars uh, sort of writing fatwas and, and opinions uh, about um Muslims needing to migrate. Uh, and one of the places, of course, is the Ottoman Empire. It's the last sort of sovereign, sovereign uh, Muslim-ruled uh, country. Uh, and uh, the, the discourse really uh, is, includes, I mean, uh, includes discussions of uh, Islamic scholarship and, and previous opinions and, and so on. And, and as you mentioned, the, the notion of Dar al-Harb and, and Dar al-Islam. But uh, what uh, many uh, sort of religious scholars, but also intellectuals, uh, uh, grapple with is the actual possibility of, of doing such a, such a large-scale migration, what it means for those who can't make migration, uh, uh, who, who can't leave and will be uh, left as uh, even weaker communities, all right? And this is, this is the question in Russia, this is the question in, in, uh, in, in the Balkans as well. Uh, so in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, we have uh, early on opinions by uh, religious scholars, so, so uh, treaties uh, discussing this, uh, discussing this idea of needing to, uh, whether Muslims should uh, emigrate to uh, the Ottoman Empire because the new uh, administrative authority in, in their province is non-Muslim. Um, and, and they're very clear on uh, that the answer is no, uh, that they shouldn't. What, what you know, through, uh, you know, scholarly analysis, they prove that uh, leaving is uh, only uh, contributing to losing this land and uh, weakening the community. And uh, some scholars who even, you know, don't write it in terms of uh, in, in a shape of a fatwa or, or, or a religious treaty, they, they decide to publish this in, in papers, right? So newspapers and, and, and print um, is really a much a broad, it has a much broader reach. And uh, they write uh, this in the language of uh, uh, that appeals to Muslims, uh, but they're not uh, sort of uh, treaties format or fatwa format, but discuss this sometimes even uh, with um, uh, theorizing on, on uh, their national identity and unity and so on, and, and bringing in some of this um, uh, sort of Islamic rhetoric into, into these appeals to wider public not to leave their uh, their 
uh, countries, their provinces, lands, and countries, right? So, uh, of course, there are people who, who are advocating for uh, migration. Uh, but as I mentioned, much of the migration is really not about uh, being uh, somehow uh, pressured not to practice Islam, which uh, many of these scholars uh, find is not the case in, in Bosnia and, and Herzegovina. But uh, as I said, they're economic and, and uh, sociopolitical and so on. So, yeah, there, there's this uh, broader uh, discussion of what should Muslims do when they're under non-Muslim rule. Uh, and, and Bosnian Muslim scholars uh, plug into these uh, broader discussions with, with their opinions uh, on, on the migration. Of course, there's other, uh, um, other interests here involved. It's not, uh, it's not only uh, religious reasoning, there's political uh, there's uh, the Ottoman state that that also does not encourage migration from uh, from this uh, province from this province that is again still nominally Ottoman. So emptying it out of of its Muslim would lessen the, the Ottoman claim uh, to the province. Uh, there are other you know sort of, uh, reasons of uh, uh, financial uh, support for such a big move or. Um, how uh, the Ottoman states would care and, and uh, facilitate the actual move and care for the for the migrants once they once they come there. And what is important to know here is that the the Ottoman Empire is already dealing with waves of migrants from uh, Bulgaria and and uh, the Caucasus who are constantly uh, arriving. And, and we're talking about millions of people uh, arriving in the Ottoman Empire. So. Um, for for the Ottomans, this was not, uh, despite the uh, uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid the uh, second's pan-Islamic rhetoric, this was not something that that the Ottomans really encouraged. So, uh, I mean, there is so much to talk about uh, in this deeply layered uh, book. But I wanted to come back to a broader question with which you end the book uh, and the epilogue is itself a substantial chapter in a, in and of itself uh, which i think would be of particular interest uh, to you know scholars of islam uh, who are the primary sort of listeners to this podcast although it you know travels widely in all kinds of domains uh, the the main argument that you make in this book which is very convincing and compelling is as you were speaking at the beginning of our conversation as well uh, dispelling this notion that equates the onset of modernity in uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina with the onset of Habsburg rule. Uh, but in the epilogue, you, again, you know, make this argument by actually showing ways in which some very interesting but maybe less known uh, Bosnian Muslim intellectuals in the Western historiography, at least, how they articulated particular visions of Islam, of particular visions of reforming Islam that were premised on specific understandings of both modernity and its relationship to Islam. So really you show very convincingly the depth and the complexity of these uh, uh, Muslim modernist and reformist voices that were doing some very creative and interesting work that gets ignored if one just equates modernity with you know, the onset of Europe. So I was wondering if you could perhaps take a couple of examples of these figures and scholars and uh, uh, describe a bit their vision of Islam and their understanding of the relationship uh, between Islam and modernity. Sure. So uh, when when we talk about uh, modernity and uh, what is what is often associated with it, modernization uh, in in Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, we're really talking about the Ottoman period, nineteenth uh, century, of course, the Tanzimat uh, reforms. Uh, Bosnian uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina are, uh, become one of the pilot provinces for. Uh, for reforms uh, in the Ottoman Empire uh, in the 1860s, with uh, with some significant uh, success, uh, so the printing press, the local press in the, the local press in local language in Bosnian, uh, so representative councils, uh, modern schools uh, uh, for teachers, military school, um, and and uh, sort of the educational reform, all really start with with these um, Ottoman reforms in in the middle of the 19th century um, after the 
the Habsburg occupation, um, the the Habsburgs, of course, uh, continue on with whatever is whatever is there in terms of institutions and laws, and sort of their approach is to change it uh, uh, gradually uh, as the as the options become uh, available. Uh, so uh, we do have continuation of uh, many of these schools and and educational systems and. Uh, just like in the Ottoman Empire, we could say uh, with the establishment of parallel sort of um, institutions of uh, Habsburg, edu- uh, Habsburg education. Uh, so the, the inhabitants of the province really have um, um, access uh, to all of these uh, different modes. And uh, they also um, go on for education in the Ottoman Empire in the modern uh, universities and, and uh, schools of the, of the Ottoman Empire, mostly in Istanbul, uh, but also other, other, uh, other capitals of the, of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, so <coughs> when we look at the, this turn of the 20th century reform movement uh, among Muslim intellectuals in Bosnia, uh, we, we could say that it's, it's really an outcome of the encounter with modernity in the context of the Ottoman as well as Habsburg imperial policies, uh, and then the intellectual currents that extend across the Middle East and, and Eurasia because of the availability of uh, much improved communication, um, interconnected market, uh, travel, print, of course. Um, so this uh, circulation uh, of information uh, availability or e- ease of travel uh, with steamship technologies, railroads, uh, and so on. Um, and another thing that I actually write in this uh, write about in this last chapter: new new forms of associational life, uh, all uh, enabled uh, Bosnian Muslim intellectuals to see themselves as part of uh, overlapping. Uh, global community of Muslims uh, that that were conversing through uh, the press uh, as uh, Slavs, uh, which which they were in in uh, sort of uh, situated in in southeastern Europe and and speaking and publishing in in, in Bosnian language, which is a Slavic language, and uh, you know coming from the the material that they wrote, they saw themselves as. Uh, citizens of the civilized world, right? This this comes up often in in, in what is what is written uh, when they're uh, seeking their their rights that that we are citizens of the civilized world. Uh, and on top of all of that, uh, they see themselves as uh, subjects or citizens of both Habsburg and the Ottoman empires. So what what I try to do is is uh, Reconstruct or partially reconstruct this this milieu in which uh, uh, that is really in the juncture uh, of what is often considered something contradictory: the European uh, uh, tracks or Ottoman, Balkan, Eastern European, Muslim intellectual uh, domains. Uh, these were very often or are very often studied as studied as something. Uh, separate is studied in, in sort of their own uh, circle, but what we have here in in Bosnia Herzegovina is really an overlap, a, a juncture of all of these uh, different uh, spheres or tracks. Uh, this this overlap um, is, of course, uh, doesn't doesn't happen in, in a vacuum. It's mediated, right? Uh, so we have the the imperial uh, environments, Ottoman and, and Habsburg, but also uh, national uh, national movements and and pan movements, right? uh, pan Slavic, but also pan Islamic, and so on, that that shaped how this modernity is understood and and uh, sort of internalized. So what, what I call it, I call it alternative modernity. So it's not some modernity that, uh, you know, what, what in historiography we often see is modernity that is that comes from Europe, that is implemented by way of Europe, that is Europeanized. Um, but uh, what I see it is, is an alternative that is developed 
when these intellectuals uh, are able to use the potentials of, of this overlapping and intersecting uh, environments, no matter how they are limited by uh, these, these uh, imperial uh, or, or national uh, environments. So <clears throat> when, when we talk about modernization and, and the idea of modernity in the context of Bosnia, the fact that <clears throat> it, was, it started uh, in the Ottoman Empire and in the Ottoman Empire, it, it wasn't an uh, Islamic project, right? It was, it was articulated in an Islamic framework. Um, it, it did not, uh, the Bosnian Muslim intellectuals did not uh, encounter it as a European project. Right, so once uh, the the uh, Austro-Hungarian um, uh, policies of you know modernizing institutions and the the province and the education system and so on um, uh, commence, they're not really seen as something alien and um, and foreign. They, they're really a continuation of Ottoman uh, projects started in uh, in sort of the middle of the nineteenth century, uh, and the intellectuals and the modernists of, of the time, um, they, they continue to interpret uh, this, this um, approach to, to, to modernity and to modernization, which they see as, as very connected through Islamic discourse, uh, even when they're not necessarily uh, Islamic scholars. Um, to mention um, different people, I think the most famous is uh, uh, a person who uh, becomes Reis uh, Ulema of Bosnia-Herzegovina, Cemaludin Ceausevic, an Istanbul-educated uh, reformer who um, actually continues his work through uh, the Habsburg uh, period, but also the interwar period in uh, what later becomes Kingdom of Yugoslavia. So um, one could really trace this uh, um, uh, his intellectual legacy across uh, across these empires, in a sense. Um, what uh, what is is sort of in in the uh, when we think of <clears throat> excuse me uh, when we think of um, sort of the, the bigger picture, or, or see see this this period in in hindsight, what really comes out is that this experience of uh, the Habsburg, the Ottoman and Habsburg experience, and uh, the articulation of modernity, uh, of of a Muslim modernity, um, is is a really important uh, basis or or uh, foundation for later. Um, for dealing with later challenges in the 20th century uh, for uh, Muslims in, in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Um, challenges that were very much uh, a part of the new sort of uh, political uh, and uh, political organization, the new states that they became part of and uh, later on in, uh, during World War II and afterwards in, in the socialist Yugoslavia as well. So I know this uh, might seem like a, a unfair question after a book that you've just finished and which is so multi-layered and such a <clears throat> thorough and fascinating history. But uh, I was wondering if you could share with, uh, with our listeners about what might be the next project that you're working on. Oh, yes. I, I, um, I already started doing some research for the next project. And uh, the next project deals actually with Migration, uh, migration of uh, Muslims from, uh, looking at the the broader migration from Southeastern Europe, from the Balkans into the Ottoman Empire at the turn of the 20th century. So the period is is a bit broader and and goes into the migrations of Muslims uh, on a larger scale continue into the 1950s. So I'm looking at this sort of broader period of uh, more or less continuous migration of Muslims from uh, from the Balkans, uh, even 
when the Ottoman Empire ceased to exist. The afterlife of Ottoman Europe, Muslims in Habsburg, Bosnia-Herzegovina by Professor Leila Amzi Erdodolar, published by Stanford University Press in 2023. Thank you so much, Leila, for your time, for these wonderful uh, and detailed responses uh, uh, here. I'm sure our listeners will really benefit from this conversation and, of course, for writing this really brilliant and important new book. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. So this was my conversation with Professor Leila Amzi Ertodolar on her wonderful and fascinating new book. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. That is NBN. And I hope you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to NBIS. New Books in Islamic Studies. <laughs>